friends down Kentucky way Spent the night getting sober in the Lexington jail And when they let me go I just stood with my hands to the sky I'll be in Tennessee tomorrow Or maybe just stay down and Welcome to another three in our podcast. This is Scott Phillips, and I'm joined with Bill Batterman and Maggie Perfume. So it's only been a few weeks since the TOC, and this is our first post TOC podcast. So we figured we'd start off today's uh, episode with some discussion of the TOC. Uh, there are a few things on our agenda. First thing uh, that I want to talk about is the schedule of the TOC and kind of the effects that that has had on the elimination round. So this year, like every year uh, in the recent past, the octafinal round on Monday hasn't started until the 11 o'clock hour after the lengthy breakfast of champions. Uh, and so by the time the quarterfinals start and semifinals and finals in particular, there are very few uh, judges and coaches still around uh, and able to judge. So Scott, you stuck it up till the end this year and didn't leave until Tuesday, uh, and so you ended up judging some of the late Elam. So tell us about for those of us who weren't there, kind of what was the judging situation like toward the end uh, of the TOC? Pretty grim. Um, I think there's two main problems. One is I think a lot of people obviously want to get out of Lexington as soon as possible. <laughs> And so they don't stick around to the end. So it's not like whereas at the at the final round of the NDT, you have like I, what I consider all these judging groupies who like really want to judge, and so they like show up in a suit and tie and like wait around in the pool. <laughs> uh, that you don't really get that at the TFC. So that's like problem number one is just like the amount of people who are there very low. Um, and then this year, you know, you had four debaters in the finals who were all going to kind of it seems like big college debate programs, and so they have rules now that if someone is going to the school that you work at, you're not allowed to judge them. So that DQ'd an enormous amount of the judges who were there, um, leaving a very small number of people who were even eligible um, to judge the finals. And the result of that was that people debating the finals didn't even get a strike card, um, which they did for the earlier ELIMS. And I don't know, that to me is just like terrible because the, your whole season kind of culminates toward this debate. And then it's very likely that you'll end up getting judged by people who you might not want to judge you, and you don't really get to do anything about that. I mean, I guess you could fill out your prep sheet differently to kind of account for how awful it's going to be like if you're a team that you think is going to make it to the finals, but just a combination of those things seems like a really poor way to end the tournament. And it was kind of weird because in the uh, like invite this year, it said all judges must be available for all ELIMs, which apparently they quickly backpedaled on and did not make that a rule. So I think it could have been better, but just ended up being really bad. Yeah, um, I think part of the problem with that is is that although the debate for the octafinals was scheduled to start at 11, uh, our, the debate I was judging didn't start till near 12.15. Um, and that, that additional hour and 15 minutes actually ends up being pretty substantial over the course of the day. I mean, what, what time did the final start, Scott? 10.30. 10.30, yeah. Like uh, it, it seems like at that point that you're... I mean, obviously, everyone who is going to judge that debate has to stay over, which I'm not sure a lot of schools want their kids slash coaches and judges to do, um, especially if they don't think that they're going to be in the late elims. 
um, or people who are driving, um, you know, want to get home. Um, I think there are a lot of people who are in the driving range category uh, who leave when they're done judging because, you know, kids have AP tests on Tuesday, as ours did, and so don't have the option of staying unless they're still competing, um, which magnifies the time problem pretty substantially. Yeah, the TOC is, uh, it's only a three-day tournament, and the schedule theoretically should be very reasonable because it's just four debates on the first day and then three plus maybe the the runoff round for a couple teams on the second day and then four on the third day. But in reality, the way that uh, the schedule works for most teams is a lot of people come in even on Thursday, uh, but everyone comes in at a minimum on Friday. And so you've got Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and if you want to stay till the end, you have to stay not just Monday but till Tuesday. Um, so, like, we lost in the octas, and so we were probably, I don't remember exactly what time that would have ended, but around 3 o'clock, and for us to make it home so that we could go to school the next day, we basically had to leave right away. Um, you basically, if you are in the Elands, you either have to stay till Tuesday, or you uh, kind of have to book it right after uh, that first Elam. So I'm not sure that the idea that I've floated to people before, and I'm not sure um, if this is something the TOC would consider, but the the bulk of the breakfast on Monday is something that could be done on Friday night because everyone has to be there anyway to register. Um, there's always the issue of if people would actually show up for it, but people, some people don't show up for the breakfast anyway. A lot of the teams in the Elims um, just sleep or the you know, coaches just go um, prepare for their debates. Um, but maybe moving the breakfast part to a dinner on Friday so that that Elam debate on Monday morning starts, you know, at nine or nine thirty instead of at eleven thirty or twelve, um, that would give another whole debate uh, of judging uh, available. Well, I think uh, that. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think that that's pretty good. I, I do think that there would be a substantial number of people who do come to the breakfast that would not come Friday night, um, both because. I know that there are some people who fly in relatively late on Friday, just given the limited flight options in and out of Lexington. Um, when I when I worked at Lexington that, at, in Massachusetts, uh, getting to Lexington, Kentucky was always a little bit of a challenge, and sometimes you know we'd fly into Louisville or something to work with that. But um, I I think another option for that for the Saturday or the Monday morning issue would be not to eliminate the. Um, speeches and other elements of the breakfast, but to eliminate the actual eating of the breakfast. Uh, Or just make it during the the speeches. Sure. I mean, either way, but I I think that you could, I mean, give people coffee and a substantial number of yummy pastries um, that would serve the same sort of coming together of the community element without the hour and a half of people waiting around. I don't know. Um, We did not go to the breakfast this year because I... Uh, got tickets too late and it sold out. Um, but the it was I it was quite late that the actual event started. I know we were told to be down there at nine for awards, but awards didn't really start till nine thirty. So that really is a solid hour and a half of people eating that could either be cut entirely or overlapped with other events at a minimum. Um, the thing that Scott mentioned about the the judging requirements is also something that was new this year, or at least enforced for the first time this year, which is the uh, entourage rule or the, the helper rule, where anyone who's at the tournament assisting your team or judging for your team uh, has to be in the pool for a certain number of rounds. I know there was a lot of um, discussion of that. There's some people that were upset about that, some people that were happy about that. Scott, what did you think about that? the idea of that rule or the way that it was implemented 
Um, do you think it's a good idea, bad idea, what? I think it's the the goal is to improve the like ability to put preferred judges in, and I think it's like not a very good way to achieve that goal. I think it would be better if they just raised the per team requirement. So if it's like five now, make it eight or whatever. Which is essentially what they used to do at the NDT, just make each team have like an absurdly high judge requirement. Because I mean, maybe it's just because I traveled with Carver, but I'll use him as an example. <laughs> you know, Joe hadn't seen a debate all year. Now he's there, required to judge too. You know, maybe someone who does, didn't quite know what they were getting into <laughs> ended up prepping Carver and then getting him as a judge as a tournament of champions. You know, so you know, I, are a small amount of quality judges going to be hired and then not put in the pool? You know, yeah, that's going to happen inevitably. Um, but the the rule as it stands, I think, just doesn't do a very good job of achieving what it's going to. You know, I guess its aim of getting more judges who can put in debates. They just raise the requirement. I'll take the other side there. I think raising the requirement puts an undue burden on people who may not have a lot of people. That means that, you know, if you are the single coach of your school and you show up with your one team, all of a sudden you're in for all of the debates, whereas the school that brings, you know, eight people for their two teams, that's not increasing the burden on them very much at all. Um, So So you think the rule is good just because it hurts people who have money? No, I'm saying that if we're going to look at how we are distributing inefficiencies, that we should be cognizant of the fact that there are you know, people who are already working harder than the average bear that we might not want to further increase the inefficiency in that direction. Well, I don't know the fact that you have one person for one team means that you're working harder, and that doesn't make any logical sense. But if you have one team and you bring nine people, and then you therefore, by this rule, have to dedicate 18 rounds then what is the rule doing other than just taxing you to pay for other people? Well, it's not necessarily to pay for other people. And, you know, if those, if, if you're really bringing nine people, is it really that bad to say that people have to judge two debates? Uh, it's two debates. It's like the NDT rule is you have okay, to judge well, now half you, of the Now debates. you've just made a different argument than the one that I was refuting. And in response to that, eh, it's just two debates. Like, most of the people who come to work at the TOC, I think, aren't people that you want, like, judging debate. Like Strauss, for example. <laughs> You don't want to force Strauss to have to judge after he hasn't slept for like four days. But that's something like, that's He's terrible when he's like slept. Okay, <laughs> so force them to be in the pool so we can all strike them anyway. Does but, not. But a some good rule of those make. people are good, and people would prefer them. And if you, if you know, yes, if you would rather have tired Strauss, if you rather have tired Strauss than you know somebody who's been judging debates, I think that that you should get to make that choice. Um, what, well, one okay. State in a coherent like ten second <laughs> statement. The rationale for this rule because you just changed it like four times. What you're correct that there are multiple reasons to have the rule. Um, I offered several of them. I think that but they're the all reason, contradictory. You were like put them in because we can strike them anyway. No, I'm saying if you don't, Scott, if you, you as a person are grumpy about Strauss and Carver, then you can strike them. Clearly, given but that they don't judged get very debates, many strikes, and now there's 700 extra judges. Now that but. It's always a proportional number, anyway. The number, the number of ones That's you have to have true. is the number of strikes here was not proportional. You only got like ten, which is the same you got before. Okay, well that's clearly an issue. But at most tournaments, the number of that you have to put in each category is a percentage of the total, which means that if they bring in more okay, people, but we're not talking about changes. most tournaments. We're, we're talking about a very particular tournament that is run in very, we'll say, odd ways, and they. <laughs> The, the percentage of ones that you had to have, given there was all these new judges and whatnot, did not alter proportionally with the change in size of the pool. All right. Well, that's that's a strong argument in favor of changing that. I don't think it's a reason that we shouldn't have people who are there judging debates. 
Okay, so what is the reason everyone who's there should have to judge? Because it increases the quality of the judging pool and means well, that, that we have more choices about who the judges are going to be. Okay, so just choice. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's a bad reason to have people in. Well, I think what I was going to say is the, the motivation behind this originally, uh, or the concern people would have, I think, uh, or at least my concern was that good high school coaches slash judges would come to the TOC and not judge either at all or much, uh, and they would just hire college students to fulfill their commitment. And it was hard because even, um, like, I love to judge, but I would still, when I uh, had come to the TOC before, would hire out most of my rounds because I had to coach too. And so it just kind of puts pressure on coaches that normally judge to hire um, people to judge for them, which doesn't uh, do much for the judging pool, which is mm -hmm. kind of the common complaint about the TLC that the judging pool is so much different than every other tournament. Yeah. I'm not sure if in practice, though, that this, at least this year's, the way this went down really helped that. I was trying to figure out how many judges didn't judge any debates, but I gave up because I had gotten to like 25 and there were still a million to go. Um, so there was a, a big percentage of the people that came to the TOC ended up not judging debates anyway. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is the two-round thing, uh, because there were so many judges, the chances that you were going to get any one of those judges was so low, and the number of ranks that you had to put in uh, for the ones and twos and threes, the kind of categories that you would ever get, was so high that you ended up not really being able to specify that many judges. Um, you didn't really get to narrow the pool very much. Well, you um, did if you picked people who were in for a lot of rounds. For a lot of rounds, but, yeah, right. no, but this year it was strange because in the past there's usually you know more judges that are in for like four or five. This year it seemed like you were either in for seven or two. Because yeah. especially if you if you were a team, um, like even a team like Lexington that had a bunch of uh, teams, their coaches or like the people that work with them most of the year were still only in for a few. Um, so it's not, uh, I think like, um, Tara Tate judged all seven, maybe, uh, was one of the high school people, but very few of the high school people end up judging most of them. So you still end up with kind of a college skew. Um, the other thing that's kind of weird about it is that like we, I thought we got really good judging, but I'm not sure, um, in the end, how much better the judging is if you put everyone in the pool versus not put everyone in the pool, because I'm not sure who people would put in the pool if they didn't have to. Um, I'm not sure really in the past how many people brought judges or like would-be judges and then didn't have them judge. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure. It, it just seemed like the pressure became almost impossible Unwilly. to fill out. Yeah. And you ended up not really being able to limit the judges that you got. Um, the thing about ELIMS, though, uh, one thing that people had complained about was that theoretically you weren't going to be able to specify your judges for the ELIMS. So like... Uh, when Woodward cleared the team, our three judges were myself and Louis, uh, Pettit, and Roy. Um, in the past, because we had cleared one team, our director, Roy, would have been able to tell uh, the tab, you know, our Elam judge is me, or our Elam judge is Louis, or whatever. Um, and now it was kind of all of your judges have to be made available. Uh, the Octas, I thought this year, had really good judging. I'm not sure. Um, do you agree, Scott? Do you think that that makes sense, at least for the Octas, that kind of all of the judges are still eligible or do you think that schools should be able to to specify so like should Roy when Woodward clears be able to say you know, our Elam judges Roy um, Batterman and Louis are off this round or whatever well I mean I guess two things one and it gets kind of back to your earlier point about like do judges or do like head coaches hire out their judging like as far as I'm concerned if you're the coach at Woodward Academy 
your salary is paid for by the students at Woodward Academy, not students from other judges. So your primary obligation is to coach Woodward Academy, not judge like Joe Schmo versus Joe Sixpack. <laughs> so you're like, oh, it sucks that all these people aren't there. Well, it's like they're not there because they're trying to do their jobs well. And like, you know, a lot of programs, like how well they succeed determines like how well they get funded and how much institutional support they have. So I'm not really concerned at all in regards to like, do people take the TOC off? Because obviously it's an important tournament. So in that regard, I kind of agree that they should be able to designate for ELAMs. Like, I want to be able to be coaching my team, so I'm going to have someone else judge for me. Um, I do think it was odd that the Octos, which is probably, like, you know, in relative terms, the least important ELAM, had, like, a hundred times more, like, mutual one-style judging than the other ELAMs, which seems kind of odd. I mean, obviously that's, like, travel and constraints like that. And whatnot, well, and that everyone's obligated for the Octos. Yeah. So even if your team didn't clear, the team that you were there with didn't clear, you still had to judge the Octos. Yes. Which is a little strange. I mean, it's kind of, it's tough because it, your last team, if you're, you know, had a team in round seven and they didn't clear, then round seven ended at like four or five o'clock yeah. on Saturday. You still have to be judging it, you know, noon, noon the next day. It's yeah. like, it's a long time. Um, but I think that that's something that you have to do as a tournament. I mean, I, I, I basically every tournament says you're obligated for the first ELIM and I, you know. The, the scheduling of the TOC makes that more frustrating because obviously we you know we didn't clear anybody we could have gone home Sunday night um, but you know all the Chattahoochee debaters had to sit around and wait for me to judge the Octo but um, that I think that's inevitable but not necessarily fixable well I mean I guess eliminating the breakfast you know, makes that was started, three hours yeah, better yeah yeah. Get, get home. yeah yeah and I'm not even sure like I don't know I know. Even when I was uh, at Marquette, we would always drive to the TOC just because the flights were tough to get. But I'm not sure if you really can schedule a flight on Monday um, if you're a team that might clear because you'll definitely miss your flight because the latest flights are still pretty early. So it just seems like... Five o'clock? Well, that... I mean, honestly, that's one thing that, like, angers me every year. People's, like... It's the tournament of champions. Like, people makes like stay late on the Elam day of so many other tournaments, but then on the TOC they're like, Oh, we gotta leave at noon. It's like I, I think well, it's AP testing yeah, it's, is it's a just huge tough pressure from schools on that. And if there's so but many you have to just reschedule your AP test. Like but it's not the, that hard. The difficulty with doing that at different places is there's there's a big discrepancy, at least in the several places that I've worked slash attended. The difference the degree of difficulty of that has been widely variant. Um and I think it's that, a national test. You can even take it at a different school if your school won't offer a different testing day. Like, yeah, I just I, I think that there, things an hour of paperwork is not that. Big I think of a deal. that principals put a lot of pressure on directors to get their kids back from the TOC. And especially, it, it's difficult too. And I mean, I guess it's solved if people just don't do this. But a lot of people take that Thursday off of school. Almost everyone takes that whole Friday off of school. So you're already missing, you know, two days of school to turn it into three or four. At Woodward, it's, it wasn't an issue for us this year, but in the past at Marquette, it was always an issue. Um, I mean, it's not that we just miss more. Fly back days. Monday night instead of in the morning. Well, that's, that's the thing is, there's, it's you can't really get a flight on Monday unless you fly. To, in the Lexington, there's a flight Cincinnati. in the morning and a flight at night from every airline. But they the only nighttime. have two flights. No, no, but nighttime the nighttime is like flights six o'clock. Like that's the thing. You like can't 11. debate. Is better than eleven. Who said eleven? It, that's what everyone left. They either leave oh. in the morning or at night. No one's leaving at like 3 p.m. from the Lexington Airport. Yeah, no, that's true. I think Bill's point was just that if you think you might clear, it's very difficult to even leave in that 
six o'clock debate because if you're debating the octopus, yeah, I'm not. I'm not refuting Bill's point oh. there. I'm just saying people leaving early. Is, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no idea and why people You two are like they can't get a flight. Yeah, no, that's that's I didn't, true. I didn't realize you were talking about the 11 a.m. flight. Obviously, that's absurd. Um, the well, like the the issue that we talked about at the beginning, the you know no strike card in the finals. Um, the there have been ideas before. The idea has been floated. Uh, I know at least in the advisory committee that the TOC should hire people, um, people like Scott or whatever, because right? you you weren't hired, right? You just were a volunteer. No, I went to dinner with AK and jokingly suggested that Debbie and I would judge the finals, yeah, okay. and then he was like, "Turns out there's no one else." Who can yeah, because that the, well, the idea was that in advance they could um, hire a, a pool of people that would be highly preferred. Um, you know, the like the I think the NDCA has done that, or at yeah. least it seemed like it. Um, but like someone like Ryan Galloway, who would you know be willing to judge, or Scott, or people like that that are not um, that wouldn't be affiliated with any of the debaters that are in the late elimination rounds that would be willing to stay, and then you would just pay them and give them a hotel room on Monday, um, and then you know don't use them in the earlier elims so that they aren't exhausted at the end of the tournament. Um, seems like that would be a reasonable thing to do, especially uh, given how much it costs to go to the TLC. I don't think that would be prohibitive for them. No. no, it seems like that would also alleviate a lot of the difficulties that of the arranging flights because those people would definitively know in advance that they were going to be there, that they had a hotel room for Monday night. They're not a filthy. Maybe they're attached to a school, maybe they're not, but either way, they can make their arrangements in advance knowing I'm going to be judging a debate that starts at 10.30 on Monday night. Yeah, and I mean, I think if you were like, we're going to add $10 for the entry fee to guarantee that the final round has better judging. I don't think that any, I mean, I'm sure the entry fee is already astronomical anyway. Yeah. So yeah. no one's going to notice that a zero percent increase there, but they'll just like slip it in I mean, as they service s- charge, ticket master trial. <laughs> we, they sold out the breakfast, and the breakfast was like $18 a ticket or something. Yes, yeah, $17. Yeah, I mean, just cancel the breakfast. Can we get over this? Like, seriously, everybody who's in doesn't want to hear those speeches. Anybody who's out is like already. Worrying about who they're going to try and make out with later. Like, nobody <laughs> listens to those. Yeah. I think one of the things that uh, we were sort of talking about earlier that I did not say um, is that part of the reason that I think the two-round rule works less well than it could um, and may address some of Scott's concerns is that the NDT equivalent, you have to have judged a number of rounds over the course of the year. and so, Not for the entourage rule. But I thought you could free strike those people. If they're not on like a certain time in advance or something, because this year a certain squad brought someone who debated ten years ago that was not struck by a number of people and made it onto some pretty funny panels uh, because of this rule, uh, and so there was actually a lot of discussion about that. But yeah, it, 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 if theoretically if they were all free strikes, but I, I, there's no way the TOC will ever do that given how draconian they are about it now. Sure, I just. I, Requiring that there be a certain number of debates that you have to judge to count for a commitment seems like it would would alleviate a lot of those concerns. Then directors can't hire out X person who's never judged a debate on this year's topic to cover their whole commitment. So two-round rule or not, more of the people who judge debates over the high school year have to be judging. Well, I don't, and, I don't, I don't know that that rule works as well in reverse because, like, let's be honest, all of the, like, quote-unquote, like, bad college judges that people don't like that come to the TOC... They've judged, like, eight, I think, is the NDT rule. Yeah. At, like, you know, they all go to, like, the Glenbrooks or, like, yeah. another big high school. A lot of them even would have, like, 20 or something. Yeah, or, like, even if they work at a summer camp, they 
Judge 6,000. Uh, yeah, we changed that. I, don't I think the objection, I, I find that objection to be the weakest about the TOC judging pool, that it's like people without experience at the high school level. It's just like people who are young and therefore bad is the problem. Not that they haven't, like, you know, seen a bunch of debates about the top. Because, you know, people at the TOC are breaking all kinds of topic-specific arguments, like <laughs> Taoism, the counterfactual Iraq app. So they're not going to have any experience with those. It requires, it requires a deep judges. appreciation they, of the topic learning. Yeah, yeah. You could judge a full commitment at every tournament and still not understand that. So, I don't know. Um, any other thoughts about the TOC? I was, uh, one of the things that I wanted to briefly mention, I guess, is just that the this class, the class of 2011, had a very uh, impressive run. The back-to-back TOC championships, obviously, from Westminster, but several of the people in this class have been um, extremely good at debate uh, and have had a lot of success. Last year's class, I thought was very good, but um, I guess Scott, what did you think? What do you think, kind of historically, um, this class? How does it compare to some of the some of the great classes before? Obviously, this is the senior year of the. Uh, college senior year of the class of 2006, which or 2007, which a lot of people think is one of the best of all time. Um, how do how do you think 2011 stacks up? I thought there was more parity this year than in the 2006 year. I mean, in the 2006 year, like there was basically only like three teams who would win an Octo's bid tournament. I think uh, you know Greenhill, Westminster, and then. You know, maybe for yeah, filling yeah. those other slots, like Groves, I think, one Michigan and then GBN. Sunnerville. Uh, whereas this year, you know, like, Lexington, obviously, they had a team in the finals, and then they had another team that won the Blake tournament. So that's, like, two from one school there. Um, you know, some of the teams that lost earlier in the Elims, like Beacon and whatnot, they were in the finals of two Octos big tournaments. So um, I think there, there wasn't such a huge differentiation between, like, the top couple of teams and the lower you know, team yeah. after that. Seemed like there was a pretty big high middle. That that while there were a couple of teams that were clearly a bit ahead of the other really good teams, the set of you know, I, I guess I would say the ninety fifth to eighty fifth percentile was quite good this year. That there were a number of teams where, looking at the list, you'd say, you know, I this is a team that is very competitive. This is a team that we need to worry about or need to be thinking about. And I thought that that section was very large this year in a way that created some pretty good debates and also made tournaments a little interesting. Yeah, there were a bunch of teams that that cleared a lot throughout the year that didn't clear at the TOC that I thought were really good. Um, The, a lot of the, it seems like a lot of the um, top tier this year was seniors. There was um, a few uh, juniors, but um, one thing that I've been thinking about is I think that the so many of the seniors in this year's class got to debate with people in last year's class uh, or even in two years ago's class when they were younger, um, such that there were very few intact teams this year. Um, but it was actually kind of interesting that the two teams in the finals have been intact teams for the last two years, and they were two of the few. So a lot of the a lot of the best debaters in this year's class changed partners as seniors and were either debating with a new person in their class or a person in a younger class. Um, but at the end of the year, the two teams in the finals and the team that uh, won the Baker Award was a team that had debated together for three years. So I thought that was interesting how, how that kind of worked out. Um, the any, any other TOC-related things that we want to talk about before we move on to after the TOC? 
Um, I mean, I think, you know, Hernan and I kind of joked in the pre-TOC podcast that all the dumb stuff from the NUT people would have to get ready for. And then, you know, counterfactual F, a lot of stupid Eastern philosophy K, you know, that all, I, I think people... You know, evidently Woodward listened to the podcast. Woodward, yeah. Woodward is a devout three NR podcast <laughs> listening. Uh, so I think maybe some other schools thought that we were joking, or maybe didn't see the applicability of some of these immigration topic arguments to the high school. But you know, that's something you definitely, in future years, you should look over the NDT case list or anything crazy, because you're going to see a lot of that. And you know, just that counterfactual thing. I mean, it's like so many teams were at that. Yeah, Quigley was getting made fun of profusely. Yeah. He didn't seem to understand that that was going to define his entire debate <laughs> career from this point on 10 years from now. Dylan, Dylan Quigley, counterfactual guy. he debated in high school, he debated in college, but we don't care. He will be remembered as the ma- the man who brought counterfactualism to high school. Thanks, dude. Thank you, Dylan. Much appreciated. We, we did get one win out of that, so. It must be summer the days are Well, so for part of our audience, the year is still going to go on. There's still CFL Nationals uh, in Washington, D.C., and NFL Nationals in Dallas uh, remaining on the schedule. So for a lot of you, you're still going to be preparing for that. Um, we'll have some content about that. Scott and I have both written about how to do all those tournaments before. Um, and so a lot of that's kind of already been covered. But we'll um, I've, I've been planning to go through the archives and kind of dig out links to a couple of those articles for those of you that are still debating. Um, but for a big chunk of you, you're done for the year. Uh, and for those of you who are underclassmen, um, you're getting ready to go to debate camp. So, uh, underclass people, underclass people. Sorry. I I apologize for the gender language, Scott. Uh, (laughs) um, so you've got, you know, a month and a half or so, uh, for most of you until you go to, to summer debate camp. So what do you do between now and camp to make sure that you have a good, uh, institute experience and to make sure that you're getting better for next year? Um, I linked to um, a podcast that the the K uh, and Debate website did with Ryan Galloway that had a few tips about that. The things that he mentioned were um, to keep speaking, which I think is something that people often forget. A lot of people kind of, the TOC is over, so they stop speaking until camp. And so the first week or two weeks of camp is spent relearning how to debate. Um, so he, he recommended giving speeches, practice speeches, speaking a lot, um, and to go through the wiki and kind of update slash uh, steal the sites for generic arguments that are topic agnostic, so critique answers, um, impact defense arguments, uh, generic impact turn kind of arguments to kind of spend this time uh, going through and, and taking the stuff from teams that have been successful. Um, he recommended doing it with the college list. You could certainly also do that with the high school wiki. Um, Scott, what else can debaters do between now and camp as uh, their school year wraps up to get better at debate and to get ready for, for camp? Well, I mean, I, I guess first thing is that you need to figure out, like, what are your particular weaknesses? So I think a lot of people, you know, just kind of, like, shut off their debate mind between now and camp. And instead, what you need to think about is what do you, in, in particular, need to do to get better at? So, like, speaking, I agree, is, like, super important. But it's obviously way more important if you're a terrible speaker. So if you 
at Wednesday Tournament of Champions and consistently we're getting like 27s, 27 fives, then it's probably a lot more important for you to do a lot of speaking. If, however, as a junior, you went to the TOC and let's say got seventh speaker, then, you know, you're obviously doing some things correctly there and it might be better for you to get a jump on topic research, for example, start working on something like that. So I think just kind of doing an honest assessment of what are your strengths and weaknesses would help a lot of people in figuring out what they need to prepare for camp. And once you figure it out, then I think you need to, you know, you can work it on your own, but you also need to think about, like, you posted an article a while ago about, like, coming up with your own curriculum for, like, how to improve things. And so I think kind of, you know, trying to do some work on establishing a benchmark, like, between now and then practicing it for the month of May and the first couple of weeks of June before you get to camp, and then seeing where that gets you and talking to your lab leaders about it is something that's important. So, you know, if you're unclear, you know, don't just get up and read as fast as you can for 20 minutes a day, you know, record yourself, listen to it, try and work on getting so that people can actually understand that you're speaking English, you know. So things like that, I think, are kind of important and just kind of like in general. I think a lot of people just start like reading about space. They're just like, oh, it's the space topic. So I'm going to get all these like Sagan books and start reading about space. I think that approach is like not very good because generally after a couple of weeks of camp, the topic gets distilled into like several kind of distinct areas. And a lot of that kind of just like I'll read about space stuff is going to become irrelevant. It would be better for you to kind of think about like politics, which will be an argument for sure on the space topic and like working on updating your like internal link file, for example, that you know is going to be useful rather than spending a bunch of time reading about like, I don't know, mining Mars or something, and then it turns out that there's, like, a sick Japan counterplay to mining Mars, and you wasted the month of May when you actually did do a lot of debate work, but it turned out to not really be relevant. And, you know, maybe that's what you mean by, like, scouring the wiki to look for non-topic-specific arguments. Um, you know, things like that, I think, are more productive than just kind of the, like, I'm going to look at space. Yeah, um, I, I will agree with that, that, that sort of topic reading is difficult to do when you don't know where the topic is headed. I think one of the things that you can do um, is to start looking at T questions um, and think a little bit about what the words in the topic mean. Um, not in terms of like writing a T file, but just in terms of being able to actually start thinking about where the topic might be headed. You know, the topic is not space um, and all of its intended fun. Um, and, and learning a little bit about what those terms might mean can help you figure out where the topic could be headed before you waste a bunch of time writing an app that's either not T or just like not very effective. Um, which is also why I think the, the sort of push to write an app before camp um, tends to be really inefficient. Um, I think that either it ends up, it's, it's an app that every camp writes, in which case you're just duplicating a bunch of research that you're going to either do at camp or a bunch of people are going to do for you at camp. Uh, or, um, you know, you, it's an app that it turns out, as Scott sort of described, um, that as the topic develops, ends up not being very strategic. So um, certainly generic research this time of year, I think, tends to be more effective. Um, and that's the research that you won't really have time to do after camp. I don't think that, you know, updating your politics internal link file, for example, is probably going to be your highest priority after camp when you have, don't have an app, and you don't have case next to all these things, and you don't, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, Once you've been to camp, there are better things you yeah. can do than update politics right. internal links, but right now, no, that's why it's great. Like a great thing to do yeah. at this time. Yeah. For sure. Same thing for, you know, impact defense, internal link defense, you know, covering your bases on impact turns, I think is a pretty effective way to spend your springtime, and is something that will pay off all the way through the year. Um, even if you don't know exactly, you know, which apps are going to beat Scott's Japan counterplan, 
example, you certainly can think about what impacts are likely to be debated on the topic and come up with a list of 10 or 12 of those and do some research on that if you do want to be doing more spacey things or you're in a class that requires you to do you know, topic research in the last month of school. Um, certainly impact rents and that sort of thing is more effective probably than, you know, whatever app you end up writing. Yeah, yeah. Re regardless of what the Fs are, you know, soft power is going to be an impact that people read because that's always the answer to the international counter plan. Uh, competitiveness and hegemony kind of impacts, economy impacts. You know now, even if you don't know what the Fs are that institutes are going to write, you know that those are going to be impacts next year. And so it's it's really a no-risk option to start preparing those kinds of arguments. You know, regardless of what apps become kind of the big apps at camp, that that work's going to pay off. Whereas if you start spending a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, you're going to be great about mining Mars or whatever, that's going to be your thing, um, it might turn out later that that research wasn't useful. So even if you don't know the topic, um, the specifics of the topic, you kind of know the, the general impacts of the topic. So you can spend time on that now. The other nice thing about doing um, advantage and impact work is that it makes the work you do after camp so much more effective because it means that you don't necessarily need a case name to every single, you know, app if you really want to impact or their advantages and that sort of thing, um, and thus frees up more time for you to do the app work that you need to do and that sort of thing. And if I could just do like a public service announcement for every lab leader in the country, like every summer there's like two kids in the lab who are like, we want to research, like, Spanos. And it's like, he doesn't write about space. And they're like, we heard this other kid read Spanos, and it's totally sweet. The month of May would be an excellent time for you to individually go to the library and check out the one Spanos book and read it, and then leave your lab leaders alone yes. all summer about it. Yes, that is a phenomenal announcement. That, that sort of transitions to the conversation we're going to have about how to be the lab leader, or how to be the labby uh, that your lab leaders like, um, which is not to say that, you know, if you're sort of awkward and weird, we're not going to love you. Um, we, we like every labby exactly the same, obviously, um, and we're going to stick to that. But all labbies are equal, but some all, are more equal than others. Some are more equal than others. Uh, but I think that there are really specific things that you can do to make sure that you're the kid that the lab leaders want to be giving more attention to, and the, the difference between the amount of attention that the most attention getting Labby gets and the least attention getting Labby gets is, you know, almost a whole camp's worth of attention, I think. Um, and that can make a huge difference in the quality of your camp experience. So um, we just sort of wanted to throw some things out there in that regard. Bill, what did you have in your list? Well, first thing uh, in sort of connecting this to the previous issue is don't show up to camp very uh, rusty. Show up to camp debating well, uh, or at least debating, uh, speaking like you spoke during the year. So that means you have to, uh, do speaking drills in the round to camp, um, because a lot of times, depending on who you are, your lab leader will never have seen you debate before. And if for the first week of camp you sound terrible, uh, and obviously look like you have not been practicing your debating, you're going to immediately get profiled as somebody who is lazy and or not very good at debate. So don't, uh, don't show up to camp having not, you know, given a debate speech in a month and a half or two months. Or, um, for many of you, six Longer months. than that, yeah. Uh, so, because you want to get better at debate camp, and you want to get better from the baseline, which was how you were debating when you finished debating yeah. your junior year or sophomore year or freshman year or whatever. Uh, not worse than that. So, uh, you don't want your time at Summer Institute to be spent getting you back up to where you were before. You want to to be spent getting beyond that. Um, the other thing that I really like is when 
uh, students come to debate camp knowing something about the topic, at least to the extent that they can identify uh, what a good card is or what a good app is and not have to ask a million times really basic questions. So the topic intro should be getting you thinking about how the topic will be debated in terms of debate and like the strategy of debate, which apps are good, which impacts are good, um, which counterplans will be the core counterplans, not like this is what the acronym NASA means or this is what the United States currently does uh, in space. So even you don't need to become an expert in each of the little apps, but reading the GAO reports about what current U.S. space policy is, reading an article that describes kind of how NASA is funded, or uh, reading an article that explains the politics of space investment, something like that, so that when you get to camp, um, you have something intelligent to share in early discussions makes a huge difference. Because a lot of times, um, those very early discussions where uh, lab leaders, you know, ask the lab, so we're thinking about these kinds of apps, yeah. what do you think about the topic? If you just sit there and are like, what is NASA, uh, or, you know, whatever, uh, don't say anything, then you're profiled again as somebody who's not there to, to kind of be a superstar. You're somebody who's there just to sit through the lab sessions. If you can have something intelligent to say, um, that would be that would be super helpful. Yeah, I agree with that. I, the way I, I wrote this down was show up with ideas but be flexible with those ideas, um, which is to say that there's, there's sort of always somebody who shows up and is only willing to yeah. work on, you know, the Mars app. I don't know. Um, and... And that can create problems for the lab, both because sometimes it's just like, well, no, we're not writing that app. Can you pick something else? Um, but it also, uh, you know, the, the people who are the team players early on and are willing to say, you know, maybe this wasn't the number one app I want to research, but I'm going to give it a try. Um, those people tend to be the people that get a lot of preference in later assignments and that sort of thing. Um, and just sort of keep in mind that we remember who took the hit for the lab to be willing to try out something in the first round. And... That, that tends to play out pretty well for you over the course of the camp. The, the, the kid who's unwilling to compromise in the first round of app choice probably is not going to, is going to be the person I call on last for neg assignments. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Scott? I, you've, you've taught some, some big labs where there are a lot of kids. How, what, what was it about the kids that uh, ended up becoming kind of the favorites that you noticed or that kind of drew you to them and, uh, in a group where there's a lot of kids? I mean, honestly, just like working in the seven-week program, you know, there's there are all kids who are going to be there for seven weeks. Most of them stop paying attention, like, after day two. <laughs> and so the people who actually, and I, like, we have to go and take attendance at lectures, and the way it works is the kids kind of sit in front of us, and then we sit on this, like, weird little, like, I don't know, it's like the panopticon. <laughs> like we're all, like, looking down at them and at the speaker. And so, I mean, we see every day there's, like, everybody has their computer out and 90% of them are playing solitaire and the remaining 10% are divided between, like, Facebook and Snood. And it's <laughs> like... the unicorn one. Jumping unicorn? No? Okay. Anyway. Okay. That's uh, what all my labbies played last year. It was devastating. Uh, and so, to me, it's just like, I, if I'm, like, feeling feisty and have some extra attention to give, I'm going to give it to someone who's paying attention. Um, and so first, you know, just like, do they, you know, pay attention at the lectures? Do they take notes? Do they ask intelligent questions? And then more importantly, you know, do you see them do that in the debate? So if I give, you know, a state's counterplan theory lecture, and then I judge six practice debates, and only one kid shows that he had a pulse during that lecture, you know, if I have extra time somewhere, I'm going to 
give it to the person who's going to utilize that time. And that's kind of how they show it, I think. You know, you all kind of talked about, like, people who are only willing to work on certain assignments. That annoys me every summer. Like, we'll do four waves of research, and someone will sign up for, like, four waves of the security K. And it's like, unfortunately, you're going to have to debate more than one issue throughout the year. If you've already done a bunch of K stuff in your past, you should be working on other assignments so that you can, like, become well-rounded and win more than two debates at a tournament, you know? And so I don't necessarily think that's like those people get more attention, but they're going to get more out of it, even if they don't get extra attention, because recutting Campbell and Dylan 93 for the seventh time is not really going to make you a better debater. So those are kind of like the main things, I guess. And then, I mean, there's tons of little things. Like I, I know Maggie was joking earlier that we make fun of flowing, but like if I judge you in a practice debate and you don't flow, I'm not going to listen to your rebuttal review because what are you redoing your rebuttal from? <laughs> from yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Literally, it is impossible for you to give a rebuttal review. So a lot of times people with the 2AC, I'll be like, okay, you clearly had 2AC blocks for politics and the counterplan. That sounded fine. The 2AC on the case was a disaster. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I didn't flow the 1NC. And, and I'm just <laughs> like, why am I talking to you? Like, what are, honestly, you've wasted what not do you think only you're my time. But everyone else's, and like probably the sandwich shop down the street could have gotten money from me if I'd gone to lunch instead of watching this. And so that those kind of little things, like really quickly, will make me less interested in your success as a debater. And I don't really think that that's like expecting too much from people. Like, pay attention and write things down. I think is the bare minimum for are you deserving of oxygen on this planet when you're in a debate camp? Debate camp. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, you know, there are kids who go above and beyond and like. Like, one thing that we always do that kids find really annoying is they want to, like, as soon as they start researching an app, they want to write the 1AC plan text and, like, put it together. And we'll be like, no, you have That's to... a like, research question. You have to cut articles and then bring those articles to us to see if we can, you know, figure out if you're finding all the cards and whatnot. And a lot of times, kids will just, like, bone that process. Like, they won't turn in the articles or, like, they'll turn them in and I'll put a bunch of markings on them and then they'll throw the articles away and never process them. And, like, last year when we did the security K, the first thing I made every kid do was each kid had to read two books. And so there was nine kids in the group, and they were like, oh, I have to read two books. But that meant that I had to go through 18 books. <laughs> and so after I went through 18 books and a couple of the kids then didn't process the cards, the cards I was just like, that. literally, your value to life is zero for me. It was negative. Because, yeah, it's like I just ruined, like, four days of my life. You know, I'm not benefiting from me going over your... Like, I have a great security case at this point <laughs> in my debate career. I don't need to reread the Cuomo article for the 600th time to figure out whether or not you found all the cards. It's solely for your benefit. And so people who kind of screw up things like that, you know, it's like, well, when they're like, I'm having research trouble, it's like, well, that's because you've been taught how to research for four weeks. Or yes. like, the Michigan library system, pretty good. You need to have, like, a journal article. You click one thing, which conveniently says, like, journal, journals, <laughs> and then you type it in. And it's, like, week six of the camp, kids were still coming up, and they're like, you sent me this list of citations, and I can't find the journal Orbis, which I think is also just freely available on the internet. For the record. <laughs> and it's, like, it, at that point in the camp, it's just, like, I don't know what to tell you if after six weeks. I mean, that's, like, the library orientation. I know every camp does it, and every kid hates it. But you can really quickly, you know, separate the wheat from the chaff by just watching to see who... Because if they're not paying attention in the library thing, it's either one of two things. They're a joker, or they already know how to do it. And so the first research assignment, if they don't know how to do what's going on, then they didn't pay attention. attention. They're They're a total joker. joker. Or they didn't pay attention, and then you see they did great, and you're like, okay, well, this kid taught himself. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm working on a a thing about this, and that's two things I was going to mention. Um, before you get to camp, familiarize yourself with the template that is going to be used at the camp. 
cut some cards oh, in god. it. Oh god, get your computer it. in order before you get exactly. to the camp. Like, honestly, I've had like three kids in the last five years show up, and like week three of the camp, be like. By the way, I haven't been able to get on the internet. On the internet, so yeah, yeah, I've been here. Also, my I don't wireless, have Microsoft Word. Yeah, my wireless doesn't work, and, I, and I'll look at and they'll have one of those HP computers where there's like a blue button, button. with a wireless signal, and it's red. <laughs> and I'm like, and they're Press. like, "What is that?" And I'm just like, <laughs> "Yep, your computer needs to work. You need to have a charger for your computer. You should probably make sure your computer doesn't have any viruses." Yeah, on I, it. I, I know that I bash Mac a lot, but what is the Mac people have this mentality that they never have to bring their charger because every Everyone Mac charger works for every Mac, so they're just like, wherever I'm going, there will be someone it's with a Mac. because they're communists. And, and they, they will have a charger that they will allow me to use. And it's like, the they probably do have a charger, but they brought it to charge their computer. It's like, maybe it's the rugged individualism of Microsoft that yes. caused me to think this it, way. You have to hoard individual Every summer, there's kids, like 12 kids, organized around one Mac power <laughs> they just, They're just like, dude, let me get it, let me get it. Oh, dude, I'm low, let me get it. Be the kid who brings the power strip. Yeah. Yeah. Bring, a, bring a power strip. Um, but the other that thing... That is true. If you have a power strip, you have a power strip, you're like the king. Yeah. 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 Familiarize yourself with the, with the tech stuff, so the template, but also familiarize yourself with the library. Uh, theoretically, you know what summer institute you're going to in advance. So if you're going to the University of Michigan, you can't access all their journals from home, but you can access their library website. So go through it. Almost every college library website I've ever seen has these ridiculously lengthy how-to videos that have been uh, made by librarians who need to do that to, as their job. Um, there's lots of guides. You can play around with it, make sure you can find stuff. Uh, if you haven't done that before you get to camp, I don't understand what you're what your issue is because it's easy to you know, spend an hour learning how to use the library then when you get to the university you don't have to learn how to use the library it's, Scott, it's over under a number of kids who watch the how-to video on any camp library before they go to camp I mean zero and I'll take the under but <laughs> <laughs> two things related to that at Harker when I had the librarian come to teach research she played this video of like the, it was like the most racist video I've ever seen of like this person who didn't understand Boolean searches in the library and just like the like old white librarian like pick, I'm sure you can Google it and find like Boolean library video on YouTube. But the second thing is like it, even if you don't go to Michigan, you should harass the Michigan librarians because they always like set up this debate page. And like last summer, I like emailed this woman about an article I couldn't find, and she like sent me the links to all these like. You know, like on Google Scholar, you can find, like, cited by it. So all these, like, pay-for services that Michigan has that do that, but they're, like, way better than Google Scholar. So, like, on Google Scholar, it would be, like, cited by seven, and then on this thing, it would be, like, cited by 7,000. And so, like, anywhere you go, harass those people, but especially it seems like the Michigan librarians actually respond to those emails. Apparently, they're very bored. Um, but, yeah, figuring that kind of stuff out ahead of time. Because, like, obviously, you're at camp. You want to screw around and, like, talk to your friends. Well, if you can get your research done quicker... That gives you more time yeah. to screw around. The other thing I would say is I think that, and this sort of relates back to what Scott was saying about people who are, you know, on Facebook or whatever during the lectures, um, you need to do two things there. First, you need to assess how realistically you can pay attention. Um, and, you know, for 90% of you, that answer is not very well. Um, and, you know, maybe that means you take notes in a notebook. Um, I, I'm, I'm old, and I make this claim every summer. But it's just like I... I go to classes. I know that I can pay less well, get less attention when I have, you know, GChat in front of me. And even if it's not that I'm actively engaged in it and I'm sort of taking notes, it's less attention than I would be paying if I was sitting there with a pen and a, and a notebook. So, I, you know, one more, one more pitch for old school here. 
Um, if you can't pay attention with your computer, don't use the stupid computer. Um, this also will save you from the fight over the outlets um, and all of that fun stuff. Um, the other thing, though, uh, in that regard is to, you know, you need to be able to divide your time. And camp is long, <laughs> and especially if you're there for, you know, five, six, seven weeks, that's a lot of time, and you're going to have plenty of time to socialize. So making lecture time, not also socializing time, um, it's not really that much of a loss of social time and also means that you will get a lot more out of camp and be able to more effectively allocate actual socializing time. Like, I think that part of the problem comes is that, you know, you think that because I have this search up in the background while I'm G-chatting this person I would really like to be dating, um, that is doing research, but it's not actually. Um, and that also means that you're spending 15 hours a day vaguely doing research instead of a few hours a day actually doing research and then, you know, having several additional hours to, to hit on that person um, would be a, a more effective use of your time and also mean that your lab leaders heart you and you get a lot better a lot faster. So, I don't know. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have fun or wanting to relax at camp, but you just have to allocate your time so that you can do that. A lot of kids um, in labs that I've taught in the past would get an assignment and they would eventually cut the cards, but they would often do it at night and then they would end up like staying up till the wee hours of the morning cutting these cards because during the time that was allocated to cut cards, they were like chilling and hanging out. I just never really understood that. Um, well, it's like the I, I like to call this the Roy phenomenon because Roy anything insists, you can call the Roy phenomenon, like go on. Roy insists that he like is more efficient or does better work when the TV is on, despite empirical evidence about <laughs> Roy and despite like all of science ever. He also thinks he that sleeps not better when the TV is on. It's like, if you just sit down and do research for two hours, you'll cut more cards than anyone else in the lab, and then you have however many hours you're awake after that to screw around. But instead, if you try and divide your time between four or five things, then you do all of them poorly. And there are a lot of, uh, there are like lots of websites that talk about how to be more efficient and how to do better work and stuff like that, and the lesson is always undivided attention for shorter periods of time, and then, you know, get up and walk away, or go outside, go for a walk or whatever. Yeah, none um, of them advocate Facebook No one, chat, no one way, advocates. Just, just in case you needed a preview of the, these the, articles. The, 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 like, model of working hard at debate camp seems to be uh, the kid who, like, sits in a dark room in front of his computer for, like, 12 straight hours drinking energy drinks. Uh, and yes, like, part of that is spent doing debate work, but most of it is spent just sort of, like, sort of doing debate work. Uh, you end up cutting the same amount of cards you would have, or, you know, doing as many uh, searches as you would have if you just, you know, focused for two hours and then uh, spent the rest of that time hanging out at the coffee shop or whatever it is you want to do. So, uh, you know, don't act like you have to pretend that you're doing work at all times to impress your lab no. leader. We're not really impressed. We know that you're not, that. first. No, no high school student is going to spend 12 hours every day doing debate work, so we don't expect you to. Um, but if you pretend to do debate work for 12 hours and don't actually do any debate work, then we will definitely not be impressed by you. I'm always more impressed by the kid who you know, spends two hours, gives me the 15 cards or whatever that I'd asked for, and then is, you know, wants to go hang out outside for a while, then I am by the kid who's in there uh, being annoying the whole lab period, and then at the end, it's like, where are your cards? It's like, oh, I'll get them to you later. It's like, no, not impressive. That's, That's another thing. There's, like, there's definitely degrees of joker. So, for example, like, there's there was this kid in my lab who... Every day would go to the library and get a little room by himself and then just watch TV. But he wouldn't bother anyone yeah. else, if that makes sense. And so I guess he and I just, like, reached an understanding. He was like, I don't want to be here. 
my parents made me. I'm not going to make it worse for anyone else. And so I respected that I respect on some that. level. Yeah. Yeah. Much more so than someone who goes to a table of three kids who are like working hard and then takes out a board game and is like, let's play <laughs> Monopoly. And so that they're a net negative dragging down you know, the rest of the kids who have. And that's like... That's probably the thing that infuriates me the most is when people are actively making things worse for the other students. Yeah, yeah. I, this is where I'll make my plea for sleep, too. Uh, debate camp is long, and uh, sleep is sort of a necessary thing that humans do, and really, actually, all animals. Um, and the, the kid who thinks that they impress their lab leader by staying up all night and telling us a lot about that um, not only makes me think that you're not going to pay attention in lecture for, like, six days afterwards, which you never do. Um, but sleeping is good, and that kid is inevitably sick during the tournament. And it's like, you have this debater who's, you know, maybe even been working pretty hard, and they are deathly ill during the camp tournament and get nothing out of it. And it's like, gosh, I wonder why that happened. Maybe it's because you've been sleeping two hours a night for six weeks. Um, and so just, you know, sleep. Sleeping is good. Uh, it is not a measure of how you know, manly or womanly you are that you have not slept. Um, that's that's not really very impressive. It's just kind of sad. I don't know. I mean, as long as we're on the after-school special PSA announcement, <laughs> you should also shower. <laughs> yeah. like, don't honestly, be the smelly kid in your lab. There's always one. There's you don't always want to at, you. like, night lab. There's, like, five or six. And to be gendered, it's always dudes who are, like, playing some kind of sport intensely Usually frisbee. for the hour and a half before lab starts and then come in just reeking of anus. And it's like, <laughs> it's not okay. It is hot outside. You will sweat. You, you need to take a shower. Yeah. Just because your mom's not there to tell you to take a shower doesn't mean that you have to not shower. The other thing I will say there is there's always some kid who actually showers and still smells. Um, and it took me a number of years to realize that this is because you don't know how to do laundry. Um, if you shower and then put back on the clothes that you were wearing before you showered, it doesn't actually improve your smell. So that's just a like little life skills um, that you'd rather learn now before college. Um, you also, know, just spraying clothes. yourself with like axe. <laughs> it's not the equivalent of taking a shower. Yeah, speaking of net negatives. Especially like... It seems always it's when we're, like, in the library in one of the little, like, private rooms, like, doing a rebuttal <laughs> redo or something, where there's only, like, six square feet of oxygen, <laughs> and someone has just, like, done the Iron Man triathlon, <laughs> and then gotten, like, some kind of off-brand gas station taxed body spray, and just gone to town with it, and they come in and do their rebuttal redo, and they're, before they do it, they're like, I want to give you 20 minutes about how I prepared for this redo, and I'm, like, already dying. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, don't be that kid. Wow. I don't think any of this advice is useful for not, how to get better at camp. Not really. Camp. No, but if Wasn't your lab leaders can't stand to be in a room with you, they're probably not going to give you extra attention. So. That is, like I said, identify your weaknesses. If showering, if showering is, is a weakness, you can practice. You may want to watch that Seinfeld where Jerry teaches Kramer how to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> practice before you get to camp. The sad thing is that most of the people that are listening to this have no idea what Seinfeld is. But yeah, within the same vein of like, make sure your computer works before you go to camp. You should pack effectively for camp. Like, every year there's some kid who only brings one pair of shoes and then walks to dinner, like, in the rain 
and then their shoes are wet for like a week and they get like trench foot and they're just like constantly <laughs> complaining about things. Or there's like the kid who only brought jeans and didn't realize it was going to be 100 degrees with no air conditioning at Michigan. And so they're constantly upset about heat stroke. And it's like, honestly, if you cannot figure out how to pack like a toothbrush and clothes and laundry detergent, you should, there needs to be life camp before debate <laughs> camp, I think. Week one at debate camp. Should we how to live. Uh, well, I guess one more thing uh, to wrap up the what you can do before camp thing, and this is something that I've noticed a lot of my uh, debaters have been doing, is been they've been watching um, mostly college videos, but there's some high school videos online now too. There's this new Debate Vision website, and then the, the Putting McCain debate site has posted a whole bunch of videos of college debates. and So it's cool that those are available now and that people are watching them. Um, but I, I think that they could do more to get something out of those debates. So it's obviously good to just watch them, see what a good debate uh, looks like, or you know, a high-level college debate or a high-level high school debate. Um, but first of all, you can flow these debates. I think people don't uh, necessarily do that um, or don't understand why to do that. But the reason is just to practice flowing from the perspective of a judge. Um, normally in a debate, you're flowing... Uh, a debate that you're involved in, you're flowing the other team and then your team, but you ultimately the flow that matters is the judge's flow. So put yourself in the judge's uh, shoes, flow the debate, and then you know recognize what's easy to flow, what's hard to flow, what do debaters do that um, makes it easier for them for the judge to follow them or whatever. Um, there's a debate between uh, Michigan and uh, Oklahoma, and the uh, Michigan is negative, and the two NC. Uh, it's a like a one-off critique debate, and the 2NC I thought was a real good example of how to make a debate that could be totally chaotic and disorganized, very well organized. Um, and so that would be a good example of one where if you're flowing that debate, you can kind of see what the 2N, uh, Edmund Zagorin in that one did, uh, to organize the debate and to keep the debate structured. Um, there are other debates with lots of other different, uh, just kind of little things that you can notice from that perspective. The other thing is you should always listen to the decisions. Um, but before you do that, kind of make your own decision. Uh, obviously, in a lot of these debates, it'll be something where maybe the evidence matters um, and you would need to review the evidence to make the decision. But you can at least identify kind of what's the core issue, what is the issue that the judges are going to decide. And so you can, even if you haven't read the cards, you can say, okay, well, the judges are going to vote affirmative if the AF is right about this card on this advantage or they're going to vote negative if the negative is right about that or whatever. But just putting yourself through the, the judging um, process in a debate where you're not intimately familiar with the argument. So instead of watching yourself debate, which is obviously good too, um, watching debates where it's not even your topic um, will, will can be very helpful if you kind of role play as a as a judge. Um, Scott, what else can what else can uh, debaters do now that all these videos are available? Are there any tips that you have for them to to make more use of them? Well, I guess the first thing is kind of like what you were talking about the judge's perspective. One thing I liked about the Putting Kane debate videos is a lot of times they show the decision, mm -hmm. too. And so, I mean, I know just, like, I, a couple of my kids asked me about one of them. So I, like, watched it and kind of, like, I didn't flow, per se, but I, like, paid attention pretty, you know, I wasn't on Facebook, for mm -hmm. example. Um, and then I kind of, like, got to the decision part, and I was just, like, could not disagree with this more. And so that was, like, a productive thing because they kind of asked me some questions about, because they didn't agree with the decision, and at first I was just like, well, they're probably being stupid, but then it turned out the judge was the being judge stupid. The judge was being so stupid. That Boom. was like, in addition to just like flowing, if there's a decision on there, 
I would go through before listening to that part and kind of think about how you would vote. Now, obviously, you can't, like, read the evidence, which is, like, what, every time I've told a kid to do this, I'll go, but I can't see the cards. And it's, like, it probably still made at least an argument an that argument. doesn't require you to look at evidence. So, you know, Assuming best card guess says for us. what the thing is, you can still identify the turning points of the bait. And yeah, if, you can, exactly. if you can figure out what the cards were that the judge was going to read and why, then that's, that's obviously really helpful if you can't read them. That's yeah. especially true because I think that Sometimes when I'm calling cards or when I'm on a panel and I see people call cards, the debaters are a little bit surprised about which cards get called. Um, and you can tell this sometimes because they look surprised and they don't know where this card is. Um, and other times because they'll say, are you sure you don't want the... This which, other one. By the way, we, we're pretty sure. Um, it's this other fantastic card. I, yeah, God. but being able to figure out which cards, which which things require evidentiary discussion or, you know, to determine the quality of that evidence and which things the judge is just going to sort of take as a given, you know, a given X, now how do I decide, is something that I think that debaters could be better at. Um, and if they are, then it allows them to decide which, you know, where they're going to do their evidence comparison most effectively. Um, and, you know, that that's something that I think everybody could get better at and is a, an easy thing to do when you have those debates to watch. One thing that I've gotten from um, Antonucci, which I think is really cool, is he'll talk about how you can write different ballots for the same debate. And so he, um, when he's giving his decision, sometimes he'll talk about that. But I think it's useful just as a, as a technique for thinking about um, debates that you're watching. So, uh, like, for example, I judge with him on the, uh, in the octaves of the TOC. And uh, all three of the judges uh, agreed and voted for the affirmative, but he talked about how he could have seen the debate, he could have rendered a, a negative ballot, and then he kind of explained what would have been involved with voting negative, and then explained why he thought the affirmative ballot or voting affirmative made more sense. Um, that's something that you can also do when you watch these debates, because a lot of these debates are obviously extremely close, a lot of them are split decisions. Being able to, before you know what the decision is, or before you've listened to the judges, kind of think, okay, if, if I'm going to vote affirmative, here's what arguments would play into me voting affirmative, or here's how I would look at the debate. If I was going to vote negative, here's how I would look at the debate like that. Um, that can be a helpful way to, to think about it. And that's also obviously really important in rebuttals, because that's what coaches and judges always tell you as a debater, is kind of identify how are you going to lose the debate, what are the other team's best arguments, what is the package of arguments that the other team could win the debate with, and being able to think that through in a debate that you're not involved with, I think can be helpful when you are involved in the debate, being able to see, okay, I can understand how the judge would vote against me here, so I'm going to give my speech knowing that and try and defeat that decision before the judge is able to make it. I think that's a cool way to use some of these videos. I think it's also important to, like, not just kind of parrot what you see in them. I think a lot of times people see these debates and they'll see a tactic or, like, an argument and they'll not understand the broader context. I guess the, like, classic example of this is, like, cross-ex smugness. <laughs> a lot of times these debates are, like, two teams who've debated each other 20 times over the course of the year and there's, like, some bad blood and so everyone is just a total a-hole in cross-ex. And then kids see that and they're like, oh, I see. Key to success equals, equals a-hole in cross-ex. And so, you know, that's kind of like an extreme example. But even other things like, you know, embedded clash, for example. A lot of people see kind of late Elam college debates where there's a lot of embedded clash going on. And it's like a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. Like understanding what embedded clash is without understanding where it's useful and how to effectively use it will result in a dramatic lowering of speaker points, not an improvement. And so, you know, you got to learn to walk before you learn to run. And so if you see 
You know, like another example of this, I think, is a lot of times when people have like seen a lot of K debates but not actually really read any critique articles. They kind of, you know, they are very good at like overview, value to life, ontology first, reps come first, framework. You don't get any plan, and it's like they know. Yeah, they know kind of the gist of it, but then you know it's just like politics taglines, like winners win. There's no real explanation behind it. It kind of, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, that's how all K debates are, and it's like, well. It's that way when people haven't put in the kind of effort to understand what those concepts mean or what the, the possible rationales for those are. And so I think a lot of times, especially just kind of the way that debates that people choose to put on the internet get chosen, there are a lot of times things where something went awry or something crazy was done. You know, nobody is like, here is a classic one counterplan and one disad Elon because everyone's like, oh, that's not very interesting. And so a lot of the ones that get up are, you know, the one-off K or, like, this performance team versus this crazier performance team. And so understanding that that's not, like, the norm, that you, like, if I want to be successful, I should emulate this in every debate that I ever have is important. Yeah. I think the other thing that I've noticed that my debaters uh, do, which I I guess makes sense and is... uh, only natural, but it's that they see these debates on the internet and those are like awesome and they're exceptional and that's what we should model ourselves after. It's okay to be critical of those debates too, because even in these great debates, you know, one of these teams lost and there's probably a lot of things that they could do better. And it's, that's why, um, when the, when the decisions are, are shared as part of the videos, it's really awesome because you can hear the judges providing some criticism of the debaters. So, you know, the judge will say you could have done this better or the way that you framed this wasn't as good, or, you know, you didn't cover this argument as well. So don't watch these debates and just be like in awe of how awesome they are because these people are older than you. Um, it's, it's obviously fine to respect them and they probably are better than you, but you can still, there are still things that they're not doing ideally. They're still, these are not perfect debates, and so it's important not to uh, not to approach these like, okay, I'm watching the greatest debate ever, and I'm just going to do exactly what these teams did in this debate. So um, don't fall into that trap, and that's uh, inevitable to some extent, but it's it's not something you have to do. I think that's all I've got on the list for um, things to do before camp. Like I said, we'll put up some stuff about CFLs and NFLs, probably put up some more content about uh, things to do before camp. Any other uh Topics related to that we want to talk about. All right. All right. Well, thanks for listening to the Three Hour Podcast. It's been Scott Phillips with Bill Batterman and Maggie Burkham.